Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman, uh, Esquire, beginning today's episode with a little red on my face. I got a uh, email from esteemed producer Robin Lynn who said, are you recording this week? Now, today's Wednesday. We release on Fridays. And I had to admit to Robin that I had plum forgot. I had plum forgot to record. I mean, here we are in the throes of passion with Kathy Jr. and Kid and the other people and everybody else. And, and, and they just want their story to be told. And what am I doing? Loafing around and goofing off. I mean, that's irresponsible of me. Very, very irresponsible. Also beginning today with a bit of frustration. I mean... Few, uh, we had a few uh, mass shootings in the past few days, and um, well, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about it. But right before I started recording, I got into a Twitter conversation with uh, a person here on the old Twitter, and uh, frustrating me because anytime I post about guns, which of course I've been doing in the wake of a mass shooting, I get the same. Uh, arguments from people. Oh, it's not the guns. It's not the guns. It's not the guns. Well, I, I you know, and the, and then occasionally I will respond. And so, uh, you know, as I said in in a in a post, I said it's the guns. You know, that's what I said. It's the guns. We got to get rid of the guns. And of course, look, when somebody like me says it's the guns, it's not because we think the guns are magic wands that somehow have an animating spirit about them and just go off on them just go off by themselves shooting people but one would imagine that uh, that is what we think by the aggrieved responses when one says it's the guns in my case anyway what i mean is it's the manufacturing uh, companies it's the lobbyists it's the 
it's the fear mongers, it's the right wing media, it's the slick advertisements. It is a culture that celebrates both uh, violence and fear. But the guns and uh, easy access to them is a considerable problem when we could do something about it. So then this woman, and I'm assuming it's a woman because she, uh, she says her name is Aeromagic, and she even says her pronouns, she, her. She says, guns have been in private ownership in the United States since before its inception. So why didn't this happen before the last 50 years? No, it's not the guns. And then I said, great, so what is it? She said, uh, complex cultural and socioeconomic factors that aren't easily identified or solved. What does that mean, complex cultural and socioeconomic factors? In other words, what you're saying is there's all these uh, complex factors out there, and you can't do anything about them, so we can't do anything. So I said, so what do we do about the 48,000-plus gun deaths per year while we wait for complex cultural and socioeconomic factors to resolve themselves? And she said, well, that's the question of our times, isn't it? (laughs) But one thing for certain is that such pursuit isn't helped by trying to hang it on the guns. I don't know why I'm reading this to you, because I'm frustrated, and so I'm just expressing it. And then I said, well, we can absolutely hang much of it on the guns, because the guns are available here in a way that they aren't in most of the rest of the world. They don't have this problem, and we shouldn't either. And then she says, tell me more about these violence-free utopias you're referring to in the rest of the world. Because with this comment, it sounds like you're perfectly happy to have suicides and murders like most of the rest of the world, so long as they're not committed with firearms. Well, okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going res- to respond to this, and then, uh, and then we'll get on with it, but I'm just so frustrated. You know, when Robin says, hey, what, are you going to record? And then I say, oh my God, I forgot, and I just got up, and then I'm drinking my tea, a new kind of tea, incidentally, this morning loose leaf tea that I received for Christmas that I haven't yet broken open. It's a, it's a nice loose leaf tea and it's sitting right by, by my side. So tell me more about these violence-free utopias. Nobody is suggesting that we will ever be violence-free. My interest is in reducing gun violence. An achievable goal, eliminating all violence is impossible. As you know, I'm just using the, as you know. Um, now, maybe you're thinking, Michael, you could have done this before you started hitting, before you hit record. Yeah, that's right. I could have, but that's not what happened because she, she hadn't responded. And now she's responding. And I can't get to the book until I have gotten this uh, out of my head. Eliminating all violence is impossible, as you know, but reducing gun violence, which is inherently more deadly than other forms, would be a great start. Okay, so I'm going to uh, post that and then get to the book. Now, here we are, uh, a good, another exciting day here because we're about to start another new chapter. This is the third episode in a row where we get to start a new chapter. And you know I love that. I love that for aesthetic considerations. God, it's satisfying to read for the proper amount of time and end on a chapter ending. My God, that is just, you know, for, for somebody like me, who reads classic works of literature out loud and comments on them as he goes. 
That is just the cat's pajamas, I tell you what. So, last time, it was a little bit frustrating because it was just more of the same. It was Kathy Jr. running over to Linton and Linton running to Kathy Jr. and them having their problems and the father finding out and blah, 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 blah. The book, I think, is in a bit of a rut right now. And it seems like it's kind of working up its energy for the startling conclusion, whatever that conclusion will be, hopefully murder-suicide. I always root for murder-suicide, as you know. Um, No doubt nothing good will happen, which is a pleasure, but, uh, but the manner of the badness has yet to be revealed to us. So, let us begin again. Chapter 27, Wuthering Heights. Seven days glided away, every one marking its course by the henceforth rapid alteration of Edgar Linton's state. The havoc that months had previously wrought was now emulated by the inroads of ours. Well, that's kind of a neat little sentence right there. I like those pithy little turns of phrase that I feel like we hear more from uh, our uh, brethren and sisterin in the 19th century than we do in contemporary literary parlance. Those little turns of phrase that just are so elegant. Listen to this. The havoc that months had previously wrought was now emulated by the inroads of hours. I could write for a a, a 10,000 years and never come up with that sentence. I'm not saying it's the greatest sentence ever written, but it's pithy, and it's got a little turn of phrase to it, and, and I just like it. Catherine we would fain have deluded yet, but her own quick spirit refused to delude her. It divined in secret and brooded on the dreadful probability, gradually ripening into certainty. Uh, good, so maybe he'll die this chapter. How, how great would that be? If we, could, if we could just smother him with a pillow in this chapter. She had not the heart to mention her ride when Thursday came round. I mentioned it for her and obtained permission to order her out of doors. For the library, where her father stopped a short time daily, the brief period he could bear to sit up and his chamber had become her whole world. She, oh, here I am. You know, I got Linton Heathcliff and Edgar Linton mixed up, so we're talking about the father now, who I'm not anxious. uh, I don't need him to die right away. I don't need to smother him with a pillow. But when he does die... I will be glad of it because I'm always happy when characters in books die, you know? It's just great. Isn't it great to be able to cheer for death? In our humdrum workaday worlds, we don't want anybody to die, you know? We don't want people to drop dead. We don't want them to suffer. But here in in our literary imaginations, God, other people's sufferings just delights me. Delights me. She grudged each moment that did not find her bending over his pillow or seated by his side. Her countenance grew wan with watching and sorrow, and my master gladly dismissed her to what he flattered himself would be a happy change of scene and society, drawing comfort from the hope that she would not now be left entirely alone after his death. He had a fixed idea, I guessed, by several observations he let fall that as his nephew resembled him in person, he would resemble him in mind. 
for Linton's letters bore few or no indications of his defective character. So it sounds like Edgar Linton is coming around to the idea of her marrying Linton Heathcliff. You idiot. You absolute moron. What are you thinking? I mean, I get it. You don't want her to be alone, but surely there are other fish in the moors. And I, through pardonable weakness, refrained from correcting the error, asking myself what good there would be in disturbing his last moments with information that he had neither power nor opportunity to turn to account. Well, that is just a flat-out lie, because all she had to do, really, was tell him, look, this Linton Heathcliff character He's no good. He's no good for our Kathy Jr. And if and if she should fall under his spell, it's the same as falling under the spell of Mephistopheles himself, Heathcliff. And so well, all you have to do is tell Kathy Jr. with your last dying breath, whatever you do, don't marry that so-and-so. And she would listen. She would honor that wish. We deferred our excursion till the afternoon, a golden afternoon of August. Every breath from the hills, so full of life, that it seemed whoever respired it, though dying, might revive. Another great little turn of phrase. Catherine's face was just like the landscape, shadows and sunshine flitting over it in rapid succession. But the shadows rested longer, and the sunshine was more transient, and her poor little heart reproached itself for even that passing forgetfulness of its cares. We discerned Linton watching at the same spot he had selected before. My young mistress alighted and told me that as she was resolved to stay a very little while, I had better hold the pony and remain on horseback. But I dissented. I wouldn't risk losing sight of the charge committed to me a minute. So we climbed the slope of Heath together. Master Heathcliff received us with greater animation on this occasion. Not the animation of high spirits, though, nor yet of joy. It looked more like fear. It is late, he said, speaking short and with difficulty. Is not your father very ill? I thought you wouldn't come. Why won't you be candid? cried Catherine, swallowing her greeting. Why cannot you say at once you don't want me? It is strange, Linton, that for the second time you have brought me here on purpose, apparently to distress us both, and for no reason besides. Linton shivered and glanced at her, half supplicating, half ashamed, but his cousin's patience was not sufficient to endure this enigmatical behavior. My father is very ill, she said, and why am I called from his bedside? Why didn't you send to absolve me from my promise when you wished I wouldn't keep it? Come. I desire an explanation. Playing and trifling are completely banished out of my mind, and I can't dance attendance on your affectations now. My affectations, he murmured. What are they? For heaven's sake, Catherine, don't look so angry. Despise me as much as you please. I am a worthless, cowardly wretch. (laughs) Yes, you are, you little sniveling shit. I can't be scorned enough. But I'm too mean for your anger. Hate my father and spare me for contempt. Right, because it's the dad pulling the strings. It's the dad pushing him outside and setting him up on the hill and telling him, you, you marry that Catherine Jr., you such and such. Nonsense, cried Catherine in a passion. Foolish, silly boy. And there he trembles as if I were really going to touch him. 
You needn't bespeak contempt, Linton. Anybody will have it spontaneously at your service. Get off, I shall return home. This folly dragging you from the hearthstone and pretending, what do we pretend? Let go my frock. If I pitied you for crying and looking so very frightened, you should spurn such pity. Ellen, tell him how disgraceful this conduct is. Rise, and don't degrade yourself into an abject reptile. Don't. <laughs> he's just he's just holding on to her frock and whimpering, and she's saying you're an abject reptile. I love it. I love it. I don't know if the writing... I don't know if she... Uh, I don't know if Emily was just writing all this in one day or what, but this this was a good day of writing. Good job, Emily. All right, let's take a quick break. Back in a moment here on Obscure. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Back in Obscure, arguing with strangers on Twitter, reading Wuthering Heights. I mean, look, whose life is better than mine? Many, many people's. With streaming face and an expression of agony, Linton had thrown his nerveless frame along the ground. He seemed convulsed with exquisite terror. I mean, what is his father doing to him? Burning him with fire pokes? What is he doing? Oh, he sobbed. I cannot bear it. Catherine, Catherine, I'm a traitor too, and I dare not tell you, but leave me and I shall be killed. Dear Catherine, my life is in your hands, and you have said you loved me, and if you did, it, it wouldn't harm you. You'll not go then, kind, sweet, good Catherine, and perhaps you will consent, and he'll let me die with you. Oh my, wait, why, why is... Who's going to, what, how, why is she going to die? My young lady, on witnessing his intense anguish, stooped to raise him. The old feeling of indulgent tenderness overcame her vexation, and she grew thoroughly moved and alarmed. Consent to what? she asked. To stay? Tell me the meaning of this strange talk, and I will. You contradict your own words and distract me. Be calm and frank and confess all at once what weighs on your heart. You wouldn't injure me, Linton, would you? You wouldn't let any enemy hurt me, if you could prevent it. I'll believe you are a coward for yourself, but not a cowardly betrayer of your best friend. Um, <laughs> well, if you say you're a coward, well, I'll believe that. But I know you're not going to betray me. You're not supposed to say, you're not supposed to agree with the coward that he's a coward. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what he needs. A little tough love, you know. But my father threatened me, gasped the boy, clasping his attenuated fingers. And I dread him. I dread him. I dare not tell. Oh, well, said Catherine with scornful compassion. Keep your secret. I'm no coward. Save yourself. I'm not afraid. 
her magnanimity, magnanimity provoked his tears. He wept wildly, kissing her supporting hands, and yet could not summon courage to speak out. I was cogitating what the mystery might be, and determined Catherine should never suffer to benefit him or anyone else by my goodwill. When he, uh-oh, here we go. When hearing a rustle along the ling, oh, that's the last thing you want to hear along the ling, is a rustle. I don't know what a ling is, but I'm imagining it's a little tree line or some damn thing. Uh, I looked up and saw Mr. Heathcliff almost close upon us, descending the heights. He didn't cast a glance towards my companions, though they were sufficiently near for Linton's sobs to be audible. But hailing me, in the almost hearty tone he assumed to none besides, and the sincerity of which I couldn't avoid doubting, he said, "'It is something to see you so near to my house, Nelly. How are you at the Grange? Let us hear. The rumour goes,' he added in a lower tone, "'that Edgar Linton is on his deathbed. Perhaps they exaggerate his illness.' "'No, my master is dying,' I replied. "'It is true enough. A sad thing it will be for us all, but a blessing for him.' How long will he last, do you think? He asked. I don't know, I said. Because, he continued, looking at the two young people who were fixed under his eye, Linton appeared as if he could not venture to stir or raise his head, and Catherine could not move on his account, because that lad yonder seems determined to beat me, and I'd thank his uncle to be quick and go before him. Hello. Has the whelp been playing that game long? I did give him some lessons about sniveling. Is he pretty lively with Miss Linton generally? Lively? No, he's shown the greatest distress, I answered. To see him, I should say, that instead of rambling with his sweetheart on the hills, well, it's better than rambling in the moors, I can tell you that. There's been quite enough of that in this book, as it already, and if they're going to ramble anywhere, it should be in the hills or along the Lynn. Instead of rambling with his sweetheart on the hills, he ought to be in bed under the hands of a doctor. He shall be in a day or two, muttered Heathcliff. But first, get up, Linton, get up, he shouted. Don't grovel on the ground there, up this moment. Linton had sunk prostrate again in another paroxysm of helpless fear caused by his father's glance towards him, I suppose. There was nothing else to produce such humiliation. He made several efforts to obey, but his little strength was annihilated for the time, and he fell back again with a moan. Mr. Heathcliff advanced and lifted him to lean against a ridge of turf. Now, he said, with curbed ferocity, I'm getting angry, and if you don't command that paltry spirit of yours, damn you, get up directly. I will, father, he panted, only let me alone or I shall faint. I've done as you wished, I'm sure. Catherine will tell you that, that I have been cheerful. Ah, keep by me, Catherine. Give me your hand. Take mine, said his father. Stand on your feet. There now, she'll lend you her arm. That's right. Look at her. You would imagine I was the devil himself. Miss Linton, to excite such, such horror. Be so kind as to walk home with him, will you? He shudders if I touch him. Linton, dear whispered Catherine. I can't go to Wuthering Heights. Papa has forbidden me. He'll not harm you. Why are you so afraid? I can never re-enter that house, he answered. I'm not to re-enter it without you. Stop, 
cried his father. We'll respect Catherine's filial scruples. Nelly, take him in, and I'll follow your advice concerning the doctor without delay. You'll do well, replied I, but I must remain with my mistress. To mind your son is not my business. You're very stiff. <laughs> ah, yes, you're very stiff, said Heathcliff. I know that. But you'll force me to pinch the baby and make it scream before it moves your charity. Come then, my hero. Are you willing to return, escorted by me? He approached once more, and made as if he would seize the fragile being. But shrinking back, Linton clung to his cousin, and implored her to accompany him, with a frantic importunity that admitted no denial. I mean, don't they have... Don't they have child services or something there in Wuthering Heights? Can't somebody just pick up a goddamn phone and call Child Protective Services? I mean, this is an outrage. The kid is shitting himself looking at his papa. I mean, just, just, just emptying his bowels. He can barely walk. You know, he's in a nervous state. He's near collapse. His father is hovering over him, about to give him the what for. The kid can, you know, can barely breathe. I mean, look, I don't have a lot of sympathy for Linton, but I don't like to see anybody being abused. This is terrible. Just awful. How'd you like to grow up with Heathcliff as your papa? You wouldn't, would you? Unless you were a hunting dog, you know, and go out in the moors and bag a couple pheasants. Then Heathcliff would be fine, you know, if that was your only responsibility. He's good to his hunting dogs, and that's about it terrible. You know, I just said how much I enjoy reading about suffering in books, but the truth is when I see it, I get upset. Maybe I'm not as tough as I thought I was. You know, just imaginary suffering upsets me. <sighs> However I disproved, I couldn't hinder her. Indeed, how could she have refused him herself? What was filling him with dread we had no means of discerning, but there he was, powerless under its gripe, not grip, gripe, and any addition seemed capable of shocking him into idiocy. We reached the threshold. Catherine walked in, and I stood waiting till she had conducted the invalid to a chair, expecting her out immediately, when Mr. Heathcliff, pushing me forward, exclaimed, "'My house is stricken with the plague, Nelly, and I have a mind to be hospitable today. Sit down and allow me to shut the door.' Wait, what? <laughs> My house is stricken with the plague? What does that mean exactly? And I have a mind to be hospitable today. It sounds like he's locking them in. He shut it and locked it also. I started. See that? You shall have tea before you go home. He added, I am by myself. Hareton is gone with some cattle to the Lees, and Zilla and Joseph are off on a journey of pleasure. And though I'm used to being alone... I'd rather have some interesting company if I can get it. Miss Linton, take your seat by him. I give you what I have. The present is hardly worth accepting, but I have nothing else to offer. It is Linton, I mean. How she does stare. It's odd what a savage feeling I have to anything that seems afraid of me. Had I been born where laws are less strict and tastes less dainty, I should treat myself to a slow vivisection of those two as an evening's amusement. What the hell, man? What the hell? 
<laughs> I mean, if tastes weren't so dainty, I would just cut them open and and uh, unspool their intestines while they watched. But, ah, we'll have to settle for tea instead. I mean, just get up and get out of that fucking house. It's a horror show there. And it looks as if he's he's there to kill them. This is awful. He drew in his breath, struck the table, and swore to himself, By hell I hate them. I'm not afraid of you, exclaimed Catherine, who could not hear the latter part of his speech. What, the slow vivisection part? (laughs) She stepped close up, her black eyes flashing with passion and resolution. Give me that key, I will have it, she said. I wouldn't eat or drink here if I were starving. Heathcliff had the key in his hand that remained on the table. He looked up, seized with a sort of surprise at her boldness, or possibly reminded by her voice and glance of the person from whom she inherited it. She snatched at the instrument, and half succeeded in getting it out of his loosened fingers, but her action recalled him to the present. He recovered it speedily. Now, Catherine Linton, he said, stand off, or I shall knock you down, and that will make Mrs. Dean mad. (laughs) He's just... He's a psychopath. He's an absolute psychopath. I, if, if, if it were for the law, I would vivisect you, and uh, I would knock you down, but it would make Mrs. Dean mad. What the hell is going on in his head? Very little, I imagine, just rage. Rage and passion. But, but when I say passion, don't misunderstand. Passion in romantic context is good. This is not that sort of passion. Regardless of this warning, she captured his closed hand and its contents again. We will go, she repeated, exerting her utmost efforts to cause the iron muscles to relax. And finding that her nails made no impression, she applied her teeth pretty sharply. Heathcliff glanced at me, a glance that kept me from interfering a moment. Catherine was too intent on her fingers to notice his face. He opened them suddenly and resigned the object of dispute. But ere she had well secured it, he seized her with a liberated hand and, pulling her on his knee, administered with the other a shower of terrific slaps on both sides of the head, each sufficient to have fulfilled his threat had she been able to fall. My God. Oh, my God. Just slapping her on the side of her head. But but I guess because he's holding her up, she can't fall. So he's just, bam, bam. <laughs> I mean, I know I said I derived no pleasure from the suffering of others in literature, but apparently I was lying because I'm finding this just fantastic. <laughs> At this diabolical violence, I rushed on him furiously. You villain, I began to cry. You villain. A touch on the chest silenced me. I am stout and soon put out of breath, and what with that and the rage, I staggered dizzily back and felt ready to, suff- ready to suffocate or to burst a blood vessel. The scene was over in two minutes. Catherine released put her two hands to her temples, and looked just as if she were not sure whether her ears were off or on. She trembled like a reed, poor thing, and leant against the table, perfectly bewildered. 
I know how to chastise children, you see, said the scoundrel, grimly, as he stooped to repossess himself of the key, which had dropped to the floor. Go to Linton now, as I told you, and cry at your ease. I shall be your father tomorrow, all the father you'll have in a few days, and you shall have plenty of that. You can bear plenty, you're no weakling. You shall have a daily taste if I catch such a devil of a temper in your eyes again. <laughs> what? I mean... <laughs> Ugh. I'll be your father. I'll be your father. He has no claim on her. He's just going to put these two people together in marriage, and that's going to be that. He can't do that. He can't do that, can he? Well, maybe he can. He is, after all, Heathcliff. So we'll end it there. I mean, we, we began with gun violence. We're ending with just slaps, just run-of-the-mill violence, and uh, that's where we are, you know? And, you know, the, the, the literary violence just delights me. The actual violence, violence does not. So there is the, uh, the paradox of violence. I mean, it's not a paradox at all. Imagined violence is, is all kinds of things, entertaining being one of them. Actual violence is just a terror everywhere it travels. So with that, we will uh, we'll leave it and we'll pick it up on another argumentative episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. Thanks.